Welcome back to the 2AM Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. Okay, welcome to the Spooky Book Support Club. Today, we are doing the first official episode of the Spooky Book Support Club, our first deep dive. And to help me out, I would like to welcome back to the show, Mouse! Boo! <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me today. It's nice to be here. Okay, so we are kicking off spooky season with a spooky book classic. We have always lived in the castle by Shirley Jackson. Before we get too far into the show, I am going to re reiterate that this is a deep dive episode, so we, we will be spoiling the book, we will be talking about it in depth, so, so if this is a book you have not yet read, then you should go read it and then come back to this episode. So, spoiler warning, spoiler alert, you have been warned. We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson is a story that I think is best introduced via its opening. And I'm going to now read that opening paragraph to you. My name is Mary Catherine Blackwood. I am 18 years old and I live with my sister Constance. I have often thought that with any luck at all, I could have been born a werewolf because the two middle fingers on both my hands are the same length, but I have had to be content with what I had. I dislike washing myself, and dogs, and noise. I like my sister Constance, and Richard Plantagenet, and Amanita Philoidus, the death cap mushroom. Everyone else in my family is dead. So I would consider this an iconic opening, not just because it is the opening of a famous book, but because as I've talked about over on my movies podcast, I consider openings that set the tone for a book perfectly to be iconic openings. If you can use the opening to convey everything that the story is going to be, then I consider it to be iconic. And I truly do think that this opening really conveys everything that you need to know about this story. So one thing I want to point out about the opening is the narration, right? So the narration is a very important part of this book, as we'll discuss, and there's something unusual about it, which is that at first glance, it seems to be very straightforward, right? It seems to be just telling you how things are. But then when you start to actually pay attention to it and read into it, you start to notice that there are some odd things about it. 
in the first paragraph alone, there are some things, some unusual ideas that point out that this is not going to be a, a necessarily conventional story. For example, we have werewolves, we have the death cat mushroom, and of course, we also have the chilling closing line, everyone else in my family is dead. And beyond that, we also have we also have peculiar emphases on ideas that will become important later in the book. Everyone else in my family is dead. A central mystery in the story is what exactly happened to Constance and Mary Catherine's family. I like my sister Constance. Constance is mentioned twice in this paragraph. So first we have, I live with my sister Constance. And then we have, I like my sister Constance. Constance is first on the list of things that Mary Catherine likes. And the emphasis on her is very deliberate because she is the central figure in Mary Catherine's life. Basically, Constance is really the only person that I would say feels real to Constance, the only person that Mary Catherine truly values. But I think that the thing that this opening paragraph does really well is it conveys this sense of something is not quite right. And that is the central feeling that is expanded upon throughout this book. Something about this house and about these sisters is not quite right. But that isn't truly ever explained to us, and that is the genius of this book, which I think I would consider to be psychological horror, psychological thriller, definitely something in the psychological family. Although, to me, it's not scary enough to be considered horror. And actually, Mouse, that is the first thing that I want to talk about today. So, my first question today is, did you find this book to be scary? Is this a book that scares you? No, not really. I found it very spooky when I was reading it, but I wasn't really scared except when Cousin Charles came out. For some reason, the figure of Cousin Charles was very scary to me. But other than that, no. Yeah, I would agree. And I think the reason... Okay, so here's the thing. I think that there are people who find this book scary. And I think that the people who find this book scary are going to be the people who don't understand Mary Catherine. Like, I think there are a lot of people who read this book and find Mary Catherine to be very strange and chaotic and kind of a mystery. They're going to read this book and not really know why she does what she does or what she is going to do next. And if you are one of those people, I think this book does get progressively scarier throughout for you because the way she acts does become more erratic. I do think that the true horror of this book for most people, I think, is going to come from that isolation. Well, not just like physical isolation, but also psychological isolation and what it's like to be so entirely dependent 
on your own family for like company and stuff, right? And that's going to seem very scary to a lot of people because it's not, our society in general is dependent upon those connections and those relationships between people. And I think the idea that you can be self-sufficient without them scares a lot of people. A lot of people hate to be alone. They equate being alone with being lonely and in a way I mean it is unhealthy in a way definitely and it's even more unhealthy when you have this kind of toxic codependency that Mary Catherine and Constance have. Mary Catherine is so dependent on Constance but also on her own imagination and her own like fantasy worlds that she lives in where like magic is real and she and she has control over her life. Like, again, going back to the opening, we have this sentence. I've often thought that with any luck at all, I could have been born a werewolf, right? And that is foreshadowing for the kinds of kind of wild imaginings that Mary Catherine will have throughout the book. Like, oh, I wish I could live on the moon, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or if I say these words, then everything will be safe, you know, things like that. So I, I do think that to people especially who fear loneliness and fear isolation, this is a very scary book, but not particularly for us. Also, this discussion of toxic, you know, households brings us to the fact that, like, there is actual toxins involved, like, people are being poisoned and things like that, which I think that some people find scary. Yes, definitely. Although, okay, so this is not a book that we are going to be talking about in our deep dives, but we mentioned it in our, in, in both our teaser and in our announcement episode that we did last week. So I want to go back a moment to The Grip of It by Jack Jemk, which is a haunted house book and we read it, but we're, we're not going to be talking about it. But I do want to go back to it for just a moment because in that book, the house has mold, which is a toxin, right? Oh, a slight spoiler, but, but it's not a huge spoiler. Um, but anyway, my point is that kind of toxin slash poison that you can't do anything about is scarier to me because at least in this book, the poison is administered by human agent. It's not, you know what I'm trying to say? I actually disagree on that because I didn't find the grip of it so scary because it was all very, very supernatural. Whereas the forces in this book, as you say, are human agents. So I actually find that like more scary because it's more real. Yeah, I think maybe I've read too many murder mysteries where especially people poisoning other people is often like a big deal. I guess the difference is that in this book, as we'll get to later, um, we never get an explanation for why the poisoning happened. Like there is never an explanation of the motivation. Whereas if this were a true mystery, there would be an explanation for the motivation, right? And so the, I would say that, I mean, that is scary. I agree. Like not knowing what drives someone to poison their entire family, right? That's never explained to us. And that is scary. I agree. Definitely. Okay, so that's that's how we rate this book on the spooky to scary scale. Very much more on the spooky side than on the true scary slash horror side of things. 
Now let's talk a little bit about our favorite parts of the book slash the most effective parts of the book. So something that I really liked about this book is that it's very tense. And it's really interesting to me that it manages to be so tense because there's not a lot that actually happens in the book, but throughout there is a mounting sense of dread that comes almost purely from psychological forces, right? Like you can tell Mary Catherine is becoming more and more upset and erratic and desperate and then as you mentioned half I would say like halfway through the book they have a cousin cousin Charles who comes to visit and he he represents a much more human evil he represents the evils of like greed and just he's annoying too <laughs> which is always you know it's not evil exactly but it is it is a kind of like petty evil <laughs> i would say especially in books right like which which kind of characters do you most dislike characters who are straight up evil or characters who are just annoying. I would say I just I tend to dislike annoying characters more. And Cousin Charles is definitely very annoying and intrusive. So I think it's really, really masterful how this book manages to create so much tension out of the interplay between Cousin Charles and um, Mary Catherine. I think it's just very well done and it definitely keeps you reading. So Mouse, what is something you really liked about this book? Actually, one thing I really liked about this book was the opening scene where she plays this kind of game with herself. I found that like very cute and very re relatable. Yes, and for those of you who have not read the book and for some reason are listening to this episode, I know you're out there. I'm going to come find you because it's Halloween. I'm just kidding. Um, but anyway... So here, here's what we're talking about. So basically, Mary Catherine is out in the village doing her errands, and here is what she's thinking to herself. I played a game when I did the shopping. I thought about the children's games where the board is marked into little spaces, and each player moves according to a throw of the dice. There were always dangers, like lose one turn, and go back four spaces, and return to start, and little helps, like advance three spaces, and take an extra turn. The library was my start, and the black rock was my goal. I had to move down one side of Main Street, cross, and then move up the other side until I reached the black rock when I would win. So, yes, that that is, that is a fun scene, and it actually brings me back again to the very opening paragraph. In the opening, Mary Catherine tells us she's 18 years old, but almost immediately, so the game, right, that's not even a couple paragraphs down, we immediately kind of enter her mind where she's playing games as though she's a child, and that becomes a very important thematic element later in the book. And, it, and it's not to say that 18-year-olds aren't, you know, basically still children in a way because they're <laughs> still teenagers and they're they're newly adults but still I mean at first it seems kind of cute and quirky but then it becomes much more pronounced especially as we move toward the book and cousin Charles comes and then everything starts to spiral and as we can see from the introduction in this scene too we like start reading her very terrifying thoughts like this quote I always thought about rot when I came toward the row of stores. I thought about burning black, painful rot that ate away from inside, hurting dreadfully. 
I wished it on the village. Yes. And again, this is foreshadowed in the opening where she says that one of her favorite things is the death cat mushroom. I actually have a second theory about that that we'll talk about later. Okay. Sounds good. (laughs) This is going to be a theory heavy episode once we finally get around to that. But what I was going to say was that there is definitely a lot of latent violence in this book. And it's so interesting because violence doesn't really boil over until the very end, but it's there all throughout the book. And in particular, what Mary Catherine is thinking about there with the rot is she is wishing evil on the townspeople. Now, this was something I was going to bring up a little bit later, but I think we can go ahead and talk about it now. So the dynamic between Mary Catherine Constance, right? Mary Catherine and Constance, the surviving Blackwoods. The dynamic between them and the village that they live in is very, very hostile. And I think that this commentary on the viciousness of small towns is really, really well done. Because as much as people like to depict small towns as being cozy and friendly, right, In reality, everyone knowing your business and thinking that they understand who you are can actually turn nasty very quickly. And in particular, small towns are often riddled with prejudice and biases and anyone who they perceive to be different Those people are often not very well treated. For example, in this book, a major source of tension and conflict between the Blackwoods and the village is that the Blackwoods are not only wealthy, they they live in this big house and they have a lot of money, not only that, but they do definitely think of themselves as being superior, right? to the rest of the village and that is infuriating to the villagers. The villagers hate that the Blackwoods lock themselves away in their house and close off their property and are very isolated and that doesn't sit well with the villagers. And in a way that kind of classism is a legitimate complaint. It is a legitimate conflict But the way that the villagers express it, right, this vitriol and bullying that Mary Catherine and Constance experience, again, like at the same time, that's not okay. That's not how you should deal with that kind of conflict. But when the conflict is inherently societal and Mary Catherine and Constance seem to be unaware of it, then how do you deal with that in a rational and healthy way? Right? It's a, it's a, I think it's a legitimate question. Like, how do you handle that? But I, I do want to point out that another place I think you can find this kind of commentary is in the Disney animated movie, Beauty and the Beast. The villagers in that movie are not portrayed particularly sympathetically, particularly the part where Gaston whips them up into a frenzy and he's like, let's go kill the beast let's murder him. He's making off with your children. You know, he's going to come for them in the night. And that scene for a Disney movie is very terrifying and very well done. One, the beast has not made off with anyone's children, right? He represents no real threat to the village. And yet it is so easy 
to convince the villagers that he is a threat because he's a beast, right? He's ugly, he's hideous, he doesn't belong. What Gaston does there, playing off of the villagers' prejudice and fear, is so, so good because it, it is a reflection of how people in society often act. Like, people who are considered to be different and scary, like, we don't often treat those people very well. And so, I really like that movie, I really like that song, and I think it's a really, really effective sequence. And something I also find really interesting is that there is a parallel here between Beauty and the Beast and we have always lived in the castle. Beauty and the Beast, the villagers are whipped up into a frenzy. They go to the Beast's castle, they knock the doors down, and they invade. And similarly, the climax of We Have Always Lived in the Castle has the villagers invading the Blackwood home and destroying it although they don't actually harm Mary Catherine and Constance, it's implied that the only reason the girls don't actually come to harm is because they're in hiding. And I find it so interesting that these parallels exist between what you would think are very different stories, but I think it does show that this is a very universal theme and a theme with a lot of potential for exploration and development, and honestly, in their own ways, I think that both stories deal with these themes really well. Okay, Mouse, what is something else that you liked about this book? Well, I really enjoyed the writing style. For one thing, as we were saying, it's like so devious, deceptive, misleading. With the initial tone, I really expected Mary Catherine to be some like really like nice person with like a big imagination, like Anne of Green Gables or maybe Jane Eyre or some other classic young protagonist. I definitely do think there's a very interesting subversion going on here because when you have a young woman, an 18-year-old woman, um, well, 18-year-old girl. When you have an 18-year-old girl narrating your story, she opens the story where in her head, the expectation really is, like you say, Anne of Green Gables, Jane Eyre, someone who may be suffering but is ultimately sympathetic. And yet, as we go through the story, we come to understand that she is actually dangerous in her own right. And that is so good because we're going to have an upcoming discussion on My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante, but kind of similarly to that book, there is this romanticization of women, female characters in particular, but especially young female characters. And I really like that, especially these days, there's a lot about like female rage, you know what I mean? and unlikable female characters and I think that's all really great but keep in mind we have always lived in the castle came out back in the I want to say hold on <laughs> back in the 60s yeah this book came out back in the 60s and this work is already playing with that type of sub subversion those types of themes like hey women are complex too don't always think that women are nice and kind and gentle like women can be dangerous too hey <laughs> and just because you have an 18 year old girl doesn't mean that she's like sweet and naive and someone who is easily manipulated right like mary catherine is smart and she's devious and she's dangerous 
And I, I really like that subversion. I think it's a lot of fun, honestly. Like I, one of the ways I would describe this book is it's a lot of fun, partially because in a lot of this book, Mary Catherine herself is having a lot of fun. She enjoys being what she is and doing what she does. And there is, there is a part of me that's like, go girl, like do whatever makes you happy. Poison your entire family if you want. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't poison your entire family. But like there, there is a part of me that's like that. That's like kind of sympathetic to her, you know, just like her, her enjoyment out of her life. Okay, so something else I wanted to mention about the writing style is this writing style. So first off, it's very well done. It's very concise and very purposeful. It creates a very tight story. But the writing style also is ambiguous in a lot of ways. There, there are a lot of questions left unanswered. And that's so interesting considering how straightforward it seems. It's so interesting that there is so much room for ambiguity. And to be honest, I do find ambiguity in general to be a bit annoying. Like, why do you think I read mysteries? Because I don't, I don't want any ambiguity, right? But at the same time, I do think this ambiguity is masterful because as we will get to in a bit, it leaves open so many interpretations and understandings of the work and of the story. Like, you can read so much into it because things aren't neatly explained. So that that's a lot of fun, I think. Okay, so as we have been kind of hinting at, Mary Catherine is not a reliable narrator. You can tell that she skirts around a lot. When we get to certain topics that she doesn't want to talk about, she'll kind of mention them and then she'll just glance away, right? Misdirection. Um, she'll, she'll kind of glance towards them and then she'll go to something else entirely. There are certain subjects that she just doesn't want to talk about. And so what I wanted to ask is, Mouse, how do you feel about unreliable narrators in your stories in general? Just in general, how do you feel about unreliable narrators? I'm actually really bad at picking up on the unreliability of narrators. I tend to just like blindly trust narrators. I think it's because like, you know, as we were talking about, most classic young protagonists are very trustworthy. But I really enjoy reading about them, or at least reading narratives, just because it gives you an extra layer to think about. Yes, I definitely agree. I love stories with unreliable narrators. Yes, they can be a little bit frustrating to understand, but here's the thing that I really love about unreliable narrators. It makes the story feel like it's being told to you on purpose. Stories inherently are artificial, right? Like, for example, no one named Ma Mary Catherine Blackwood actually exists, right? This is Shirley Jackson choosing to tell Mary Catherine's story. But when you add in the device of the unreliable narrator, it makes it feel much more like she's actually telling her own story because if Mary Catherine Blackwood were a real person and she were telling her story, she would tell it unreliably. This is the way she would tell it because she is a very selfish person. She always has her own interests at heart and there's no incentive or motivation for her to ever tell the truth about anything. And so to me, in a way, it makes it feel more real and more trustworthy, especially in the case of this type of story. Now, the thing about unreliable narrators is that it doesn't universally apply. I don't, 
I, I think it works for very specific stories and very specific narrators and the thing I don't like is when this device is misused I don't think it should just be randomly applied because then it ruins the magic but in this case when it when the device works so well for the specific context then I really like it I think it's I think it's really great so Let's talk a little bit about Mary Catherine as an unreliable narrator. So let's discuss, what do you think that she is lying about? Mouse, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Oh, please go first. Okay, sure. So here's something I feel Mary Catherine is definitely lying about. So throughout the book, Constance, her sister, is very nice and very sweet and weirdly submissive to her sister. She's like, oh, you want me to do this? You want me to do that? Sure, sure, sure. You know what I mean? Like she is very much always listening to what other people have to say and what other people want her to do. And the thing is, that feels a little off to me. I don't think that's necessarily always how Constance acts. Like, I am sure Constance has her off days. And in particular, I want to say, okay, we'll get to this later, but Constance's behavior towards the end of the book feels very off to me in particular like that whole I would say like last quarter of the book Constance just feels off her behavior does not seem reasonable or rational or understandable within the context of who we know she is and so I'm gonna say that Mary Catherine's portrayal of Constance is much more in line with who she wishes Constance was and what she would like her sister to be rather than who Constance actually is all the time. Mouse, any thoughts? Yeah, I definitely agree. It was one of those narratives which reminds you of like those stories when like the narrator is trying to hide the fact that either the other person is actually very unhappy or the other person is very manipulative and they just don't want to recognize that manipulation because they are being manipulated and they just don't want to think about that fact. Yeah, Mary Catherine is definitely manipulative. I meant it the other way. Oh, sorry, you meant, you meant Constance is manipulative. I'm saying that, like, I've read both kinds oh, of books. Oh. Oh, so either Constance is manipulative or Mary Catherine just wishes, like, Constance were actually, like, this happy or this whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry, sorry. I misunderstood. Yeah. I think in this case, it's definitely Mary Catherine wishes Constance were this happy. Yeah. Um, sorry, I mis I misunderstood what you're saying. Okay. Actually, like, it's interesting that you think so, because I th personally, probably because I believe narrators too much, but I personally read it as Constance being the manipulative one. Huh. That's interesting. Okay. Um, did you want to talk about that now or did you, you later? Later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get to that because I'm very interested. I'm very interested in Constance in general. I feel like she is definitely a character that's not really fleshed out all that much. Like she's definitely there, but you really have to look for her because you're seeing her through Mary Catherine's eyes. Definitely my perspective on it is that Constance is very unhappy and Mary Catherine just doesn't want to see that. But I think there are definitely hints of it throughout the book, and we, we will get to that in a minute. Okay, any, do you have any other instances where you think Mary Catherine is being unreliable? I don't know if I would call it unreliable, but 
I think that it might be the place to mention that Mary Catherine is extremely superstitious. So even if that isn't like considered unreliability, it is another layer to her narrative. For instance, she insists that Cousin Charles is a ghost and a demon. Yeah, Mary Catherine is very superstitious. I would say that it's definitely true that she has OCD and, um... You know, like all her little rituals and her beliefs, that's very, that reads very OCD to me. And I think paranoia is part of OCD, right? Yeah, Mary Catherine definitely suffers a lot and it definitely colors her narrative and her perspective. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the sibling relationship and in particular the Blackwood family. Now, The siblings are both in this story, but the Blackwood family mostly is not, and I say mostly um, because Uncle Julian is still around, but everyone else in the Blackwood family is gone. They were murdered at dinner one night via poison, and one of the central mysteries throughout the book is what happened because Constance was tried for murder but she was acquitted she didn't she didn't commit the murder we know that and of course the big reveal is that Mary Catherine is the one who did it she killed everyone but she very purposefully put the poison in the sugar so that Constance would survive because Constance didn't take sugar so the question is Why did Mary Catherine kill her family? Because that is never explained in the book. There is no motivation for the murders. And more importantly, maybe, why is Constance not upset? Because Constance knows. That's clear. Constance knows Mary Catherine did it. And one would think that if one sibling had murdered one's entire family, one might legitimately be a little upset about that. (laughs) So the question is, Why did Mary Catherine do it? Why is Constance not upset? Let's address the first question. Why did Mary Catherine do it? So to me personally, I think there are two big possibilities here. I think that one, the family could have been abusive, right? And so Mary Catherine just like hated all of them. There's definitely textual evidence for that. For example, Mary Catherine, we know, was being punished that day. She was sent to her room without dinner. The other thing is that there is a part of the book where Mary Catherine is, so basically she's sitting there and she's imagining that all her family is back together and she's making her family say things like, oh, Mary Catherine is the best child ever. There's no need to punish her. Nobody would ever send her to bed without her dinner. You know what I mean? And that could point to an abusive family. And Mary Catherine is imagining these things because she really wishes that was how her family had been when they were alive. The other possibility, which is much darker, honestly, what, what is darker than the entire family being abusive? I'll tell you. The other possibility is that Mary Catherine was so codependent on Constance that she could not stand the idea of sharing her sister even with their own family. So that that is the other possibility. Mary Catherine was just like, I hate everyone because there, there are signs that Constance was kind of this way even when the family was around. She was always like cooking for everyone and taking care of everyone. And that was basically always her job. But now that everyone else is gone, 
Constance can focus her entire attention on Mary Catherine and that is Mary Catherine's goal all along. That is why she committed murder, multiple murders. <laughs> but um, so to me, those are the two possibilities. Mouse, what do you think? I definitely agree with those possibilities, but it's also kind of scary in this book how Mary Catherine is just plain murderous. Like, she'll, like, go into the village and imagine everybody dead. She'll tell Constance that at some point she's like, oh, I'm going to poison everybody or something like that, right? Maybe. I, I don't remember. I will, okay, I will say it's not... The murderous intentions are not exclusively confined to Mary Catherine alone. Okay, so what happens is at... So let's let's kind of talk about the ending for a minute. Um, so basically, after the house burns down, there is a portion of the house that's left to be habitable, and Mary Catherine and Constance shut themselves away in it. Cousin Charles has gone by that point, but he comes back one last time at the very end of the book and he's like let me in let me in constance blah 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 he, he's after the money but anyway he eventually leaves constance you know what constance says okay i'm gonna i'm gonna find the exact quote oh yes the least charles could have done constance said considering seriously was shoot himself through the head in the driveway I think that this really points to my theory that Constance does not want to commit murder herself, but she's willing to drive other people to it. She wants other people to die. So my theory is that she was the one who caused Mary Catherine to poison everybody. And then she kind of, in a way, holds it over Mary Catherine. But also, Mary Catherine is just dependent on Constance to begin with. And Constance doesn't hate Mary Catherine enough to, like, kill her or anything. So my theory is that Constance doesn't want to commit murder herself. But she wants to see other people die. She wants to drive other people to death. So she drove Mary Catherine to killing other people for her. So do you think Constance had a motive? Well, as you said, Constance was having to take care of the family. It's possible that she didn't really want to do that. She seems to want to get out of the house. <laughs> so so she's like, I don't want to have to like be confrontational. So the easiest solution is to get my younger sister to just murder everyone else. <laughs> That's so dark. Oh my gosh. Okay. I mean, I was just gonna say that the reason Constance isn't upset at Mary Catherine is because she's just very go with the flow and she wants to salvage what is the what is left of her life after everyone's dead because she really does seem to be content to just like cook all day and just like take care of Mary Catherine. So she she's like, if Mary Catherine went to jail, I wouldn't have anyone to take care of. I don't know. To be honest, like Constance Constance is a character that I don't think is possible to fully understand unless you did very close readings. But even then, I think all you could come up with is convincing theories because this is Mary Catherine's story and I think it's difficult to understand Constance. But that doesn't mean we can't try to understand her. So how do we think Constance feels about things? Who is she really? So, okay, so here's my thought. I think that Constance is afraid of Mary Catherine on some level, but 
either she doesn't realize that she's afraid of her little sister or she knows that if she does show fear, Mary Catherine is going to, it's going to ruin her relationship with Mary Catherine and that is going to drive Mary Catherine to murder her. That's my thought process. I don't know if that's right or not, but I do think there is fear in that relationship and that is why Constance is so continually submissive to Mary Catherine no matter what Mary Catherine does or what Constance really wants. I don't know if I agree with that just because there are so many scenes where Constance is telling Mary Catherine what to do. Like Constance is Mary Catherine's mother in this book. I agree that she does like quote unquote overlook Mary Catherine's actions but I also feel like that might be because she's manipulated her into doing so many things. Okay so I do agree that Constance views Mary Catherine as her child. For example there's this quote. What have I done to my baby Maricat? She said, no house, no food, and dressed in a tablecloth. What have I done? I do agree on that point, definitely. Constance is a mother figure. But my question is kind of where does Constance tell Mary Catherine what to do? Because I'm not remembering that. Do you have specific examples? For instance, when cousin Charles comes to visit, doesn't she like tell Mary Mary Catherine to like sit at the table with them or something like that? Oh, yes, but she has to tell Mary Catherine that multiple times before she agrees. But that 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 doesn't feel very much like Constance ordering her around or like telling her what to do. I don't know. I guess the reason that more than Constance's words, I think what got me was Mary Catherine's reaction like oh I have to do this oh I have to do that kind of thing okay so there okay so I think I kind of get what you mean okay there is a weird motif there's a weird motif running throughout this book where Mary Catherine is like okay so Mary Catherine's like I'm not allowed to do this I'm not allowed to do that okay so that's interesting because at the beginning of the book it at first serves to make her seem more childlike like oh Constance is telling her what to do how old is she again but then you realize Constance I mean not Constance Mary Catherine is setting those boundaries and those rules for herself Mary Catherine is being like I'm not allowed to do this I'm not allowed to do that and it's part of her OCD but then here's where I think you're right there is another layer to that again where some of it is Constance telling her what she is and isn't allowed to do. There is a part in the book, I agree, I don't remember where it was anymore, but there is a part in the book where it's explicitly coming from Constance that you're not allowed to do this, you're allowed to do that thing. But then there's yet another layer to that as well where Constance tries to tell Mary Catherine that she's allowed to do something, but then Mary Catherine says that she's not. So there's a lot of complexity in that motif in particular. But yeah, you're right. There is definitely a moment where we see that Constance is the one telling her what to do. It's complicated though. It's really complicated because clearly some of it is coming from Mary Catherine herself and she won't always listen to Constance, right? But yeah, there is definitely a possibility that Constance is very being very subtly manipulative and even when she says something she doesn't mean it or she means something else or you know that that's another difficulty though like this relationship is so layered and complex the problem is that a lot of it is subconscious I don't think 
either of them fully realize what their relationship is. And I don't know that we can really say that it's a straightforward case of one controlling the other. I think there's a lot of back and forth. But you're right, yeah, Constance is not a victim. However, I do feel bad for Constance because I do think she truly wanted to escape Blackwood. There's many indications throughout the book that she wants to leave and she tries to leave but Mary Catherine would never allow that. And I that's why I say I think she's afraid of Mary Catherine on some level because I think she knows that if she did try to leave, Mary Catherine would stop at nothing to make sure she never did. That's interesting because Mary Catherine also really wants to go to the moon, quote unquote. What do you think of that? Well, the moon, so what she means by that is a place where they are completely isolated. Like, they're not on Earth anymore. There's literally no other human beings. Like, if Mary Catherine could, she would nuke everyone else on the planet and just have her and her sister survive. You know what I mean? Like, she doesn't literally want to go anywhere else. I, I think in her mind, it's like, if Blackwood House could be transported to the moon magically, that's what she means by, like, I want to go to the moon. That's my theory. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. But if that were actually the case, if Constance really did want to leave, then wouldn't she realize if she really were, like, you know, the kind of person you're talking about, like, afraid of Mary Catherine, etc., then wouldn't she realize that her dream of leaving would never come true as long as Mary Catherine were around? Yes, but the thing is, like, okay, so there, there's a, there's some complexity here as well. One reason that Mary Catherine, I mean, not Mary Catherine, one reason Constance doesn't leave or take any decisive action in leaving is because she is afraid of leaving. Like, there's a mental block there, and several people in the book almost help her with that mental block. Like, she almost gets to the point where she has enough courage to leave but she never quite gets there that's why she never has to confront her relationship with Mary Catherine does that make sense even if there is fear there even if she realizes that Mary Catherine is the obstacle that would prevent her from leaving Constance never really has to deal with it because she never gets there okay shall we move on to talking about cousin Charles okay Cousin Charles, something, okay, something interesting I wanted to point out is, so in this version of We Have Always Lived in the Castle, this edition, that's what it's called, <laughs> this edition, it has an introduction, and in the introduction, we get this quote that I wanted to talk about because I find it interesting. Okay, so here is the quote. The story is a freeze disturbed. Mary Cat has stilled her family, nailed them like a book to a tree forever to be unread. When Cousin Charles arrives transparently in search of the Blackwood's hidden fortune, though like everything else in the book, the money's a purloined letter secreted in full view, he brings a ripple of disturbance that his cynical mission doesn't fully account for. Uncle Julian leads us to the brink of speculation when he mentions, when he mentions their ages. Cousin Charles is 32 and Constance is 28. No one, certainly least of all Maricat, will say that Constance is a kind of Emily Dickinson, drowning sexual yearning in her meticulous housework and in sheltering her damaged uncle and dangerous sister, but certainly that is the risk that Charles truly represents, the male principle. Uncle Julian is definitely emasculated, 
possibly gay, certainly was his harmlessness that permitted his survival of the poisoning. Okay, so I wanted to discuss this quote because I do think it brings up something interesting here, which is gender and in particular the role that masculinity plays in this story. Because I do think that there is something there. I kind of see where the quote is coming from because Cousin Charles... There's a reason I do think that Cousin Charles is a man and not a woman. However, I don't think that Uncle Julian is safe because he's emasculated so much as this quote says. But I think I think Uncle Julian is permitted to survive and be taken care of because he's literally stuck in time. Like his mind, his mental state won't allow him to move past the day that the rest of the family died, which to Mary Catherine is the ideal state. She doesn't, if Uncle Julian were able to move past that point, she wouldn't have allowed him to keep living. So I don't agree. I don't agree that Uncle Julian is safe because he's like emasculated and, you know, not very masculine. Like, I don't think that's what that is. And furthermore, so Mary Catherine is hostile also to the women who come to the house to try to convince Constance to leave, right? Like she is very upset that they're trying to convince Constance to leave and Constance seems to want to agree with them that she should leave the house. To me, the main difference seems to be that Charles is a visitor living in the house (laughs) and that's what makes him more dangerous i don't think it's necessarily because he is a man but i don't i don't know so i kind of wanted to talk about this mouse what are your thoughts so this writer whoever wrote the introduction is saying that he's a danger because he's a possible romantic interest no i don't think it's that i think that he's saying that masculinity in general is a force that could create change because of for example constance finding a romantic interest not cousin charles <laughs> i don't think he he's suggesting that necessarily but constance could also encounter a different man someone of her own age who she might be interested in forming a relationship with, and that would be a huge change. It would be a fundamental change in the family, which would make Mary Catherine very unhappy. I I think that's what the writer is suggesting. And I was just wondering, like, what do you think? Do you you agree? No, I agree more with your interpretation. Yeah, I I think I'm going to say that it's more of the position that Charles is in relative to the sisters and not so much that he's necessarily a man like I don't I I don't really see it that way but I did I did think it was interesting because it leads us into a segue into talking about gender and gender roles in this book which I think are very interesting and nuanced okay so here's something I want to point out So towards the very beginning of the book, right, we learn that the Blackwoods attach a lot of importance to property, to physical objects. So here's the quote. We rarely moved things. The Blackwoods were never much of a family for restlessness and stirring. We dealt with small surface transient objects, the books and the flowers and the spoons. But underneath, we had always a solid foundation of stable possessions. We always put things back where they belonged. 
We dusted and swept under tables and chairs and beds and pictures and rugs and lamps. But we left them where they were. The tortoiseshell toilet set on our mother's dressing table was never off place by so much as a fraction of an inch. Blackwoods had always lived in our house and kept their things in order. As soon as a new Blackwood wife moved in, a place was found for her belongings. And so our house was built up with layers of Blackwood property, weighing it and keeping it steady against the world. Here's the interesting part, though. The only property I would argue that actually preserves the personality and, like, the only creations that are kept around are the creations of the Blackwood women. And here's what I'm talking about. All the Blackwood women had made food and taken pride in adding to the great supply of food in our cellar. There were jars of jam made by great-grandmothers with labels in pale, thin writing, almost unreadable by now, and pickles made by great-aunts and vegetables put up by our grandmother. And even our mother had left behind her six jars of apple jelly. So... I think that's really interesting. Like the men don't leave any tangible creations behind. The only people who do are women. Oh, by the way, I do think that it's interesting that when Mary Catherine is talking about like the jam and the jelly and whatever. So there, there is this quote as well. Each year, Constance and Uncle Julian and I had jam or preserve or pickle that Constance had made, but we never touched what belonged to the others. Constance said it would kill us if we ate it. That is interesting, isn't it? Why would it necessarily kill them? Because, like, for example, like, maybe the very old stuff would be unsafe to eat. But, like, their mother didn't die all that long ago. Like, the je jelly? Jelly. The apple jelly she made wouldn't necessarily be dangerous to eat. And also, the entire point of preserves is that it's stored food. Like, it doesn't go bad. So I find that weird, a weird thing for Constance to say, and I feel like there's some significance there, but I can't quite figure it out. So, Mouse, do you have any ideas on, like, why Constance says that? Like, it's such a weird thing to say. Do you think it's just her fixation was, like, murder, or do you think there's something else there? Hmm. Yeah, I agree. Someone smarter than us, uh, tell us if you figure out the significance of why Constance says that. Okay, so, so what's interesting to me about the gender roles here, okay? There is a weird dissonance. Okay, so here's Mary Catherine's perspective. Mary Catherine's perspective is very much matrilineal in that she focuses almost exclusively on the women of her family. She talks a great deal about Constance and their mother and, as we read about, the grandmothers and the great-grandmothers and the Blackwood women. Like, that is her focus. In fact, Mary Catherine, towards the beginning of the book, says that she hates walking by the house where her mother was born because she believes that Constance should have inherited it, which is so strange because that's not usually how inheritance works, right? And yet, here's, here's the interesting part. We have glimpses into the Blackwood family dynamic before the murders happened via Uncle Julian. And in Uncle Julian's offhand remarks, we get a very different picture. We don't get a picture of a matrilineal female-focused household. So here, here are a couple of quotes. 
Our wives always did as they were told. That's one quote. I think if I had known it was her, his wife's, last breakfast, I would have permitted her more sausage. Note the use of the word permitted. He would have allowed her to have more sausage. So that points to a much more patriarchal gendered household. Like those seem to be the actual gender dynamics that happened in the household. But then where is Mary Catherine getting this very female focused perspective from? Like that to me is a very strange dissonance. Like where is that cognitive dissonance coming from? And did it play a role in the murders? What do you think, Mouse? I think it's possible. And I think that might also be like what the introduction writer might have been getting at. Maybe they were saying that Cousin Charles was a possible restoration of that order. Yeah, that's true. Maybe also Mary Catherine's fear of like Constance getting married or herself getting married for that matter is that it would be history repeating itself. That That's really interesting. Yes, I think that does neatly tie together a lot of the things that we've been talking about. Yeah, even though I still think that you're right, the reason that Uncle Julian isn't perceived as a threat is because he is stuck in time. Speaking of being stuck in time, let's talk a little bit about the ending. And then after the ending, we will get closer to our theory time, <laughs> which I know that Mouse, you are very excited about. Okay, so in the end of the book, they basically shut themselves away in what remains of the house, and that's it. They are forever stuck in that tiny little space, doing the same things day after day after day, down to wearing the exact same clothes. And if you're wondering how they survive, the villagers start leaving them food because they have basically at this point become an urban legend. They have become ghosts. And the implication to me of the title, we have always lived in the castle, is that they will continue to live this way forever. We have always lived in the castle. So I think that it's significant that their family's property, which we know Mary Catherine placed such an emphasis on, was completely destroyed by the fire, by the villagers, everything that has anchored them to their past and to the memory of who they were before has been destroyed. And in a way, they lose their identities. They are no longer Mary Catherine Blackwood and Constance Blackwood. They are Mary Catherine and Constance, the ladies. That is what everyone in the village now calls them. Don't get too close to the house or the ladies will get you, right? Honestly, that is the perfect ending for them. They started the book in stasis and they end the book in a state of permanent stasis. At the beginning of the book, there was some possibility of change. But of course, Mary Catherine could never allow that because change is the thing that she will do anything to stop. And at the end of the book, she has she has made it certain that there will never be any more change for her and for Constance. Okay, so let's talk about things we didn't understand and then we'll get to theories. Okay, things that we... <laughs> don't understand. So my two things both are related to Constance. First off, at the end of the book, right, Constance seems very happy to be shut away in the house with Mary Catherine forever. In fact, oh, here we go. 
I am so happy, Constance said at last, gasping. Mary Cat, I am so happy. And that is on the next to last page of the book. Is this believable? Now, the reason I question this is because Constance, the thing that she likes to do, as we have established throughout the entire book, is she likes to cook. That is what she does all day long. That is basically like her thing in life. But at the end of the book, she doesn't cook anymore. She just eats the things that people have brought her and that's that's it. And is it truly believable that she would be so happy if the only thing she did was sit around all day and not get to cook? I don't believe that. Like, I just, that doesn't read right to me. I don't think that it's, I don't know. I just don't find it believable. And to me, that is the part where I'm like, Mary Catherine, you are lying. You are being an unreliable narrator. I can't believe you. Like, that doesn't seem right to me. So, uh, Mouse, do you have anything where you just don't understand? Hmm. I actually kind of disagree on the lack of cooking because I think there is some cooking going on. Isn't it mentioned that a basket of eggs is brought, for instance? And don't they, like, go out into the garden to pick things to cook with? Yes. Okay. So here's the, I I thought you might bring this up. (laughs) So they do, okay, here are the ingredients they have. They have milk, eggs, butter, and some garden vegetables. But the thing is, there isn't much you can make with that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that would be enough to keep Constance happy. Like, before she had a variety of ingredients, and she... The thing about Constance is, if you notice throughout the book, she's always making different kinds of food. Like, she loves intricate and complex meals. Like, that. that's what makes her happy. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, there's... Like, she makes such a variety of food, and I don't think she could be happy if all she could make was omelets. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that doesn't... That doesn't ring true to me. It's not like they're bringing her all kinds of ingredients. It's just eggs and milk, basically. That I don't know. To me, it doesn't it doesn't ring true. It doesn't feel right in the context of everything we have learned about Constance up to this point. Throughout the book, she wakes up in the morning. She's like, Mary Catherine, what do you want for breakfast? You know, Mary Catherine's like, oh, I want this for breakfast. You know what I mean? And then uh, she cleans up the house and she's like, Mary Catherine, what do you want for lunch? You know what I mean? Like there's that routine and that seems to be what's making Constance happy. If she doesn't have that anymore, why is she happy? That doesn't, I don't know. I don't, I don't believe that. It is very, very questionable. Thank you. You agree with me. <laughs> do, you, do you have anything that you wanted to bring up? Maybe Mary Catherine tries to believe this because Mary Catherine herself is not happy. Yeah, I I agree. Because, like, Mary Catherine also had a routine of sorts. Like, she loved going outside and running around in the woods and stuff. And even, (laughs) you know, like, I don't do that. But if I'm shut up in the house all the time, like, I get unhappy too, you know? And I think that if that was your routine, like, going outside every single day and running around and you didn't get to do that anymore... How depressing would that be? Because literally, they don't just shut themselves away in the house. They board up all the windows and all the doors. Like, there's not even natural light. So it's like, gosh, that would be really depressing. Just on, like, 
a biological level because if you don't get sunlight you get depressed if there's no sunlight you get seasonal affective depression (laughs) like just on a biological level these girls would be very depressed depressed because they don't have any sunlight (laughs) right even if you were right in thinking that oh mary Catherine's like just super obsessed with her sister and she tried to make this happen and it happened i don't think this is what she wanted yeah i agree also also it is hard to believe that both of these sisters okay so there's there's also a couple of other things that are weird about the ending one it's implied that what they do all day is they sit there and watch people like the people from the village come up to the property and like picnic picnic on the lawn and stuff right and the sisters just like watch them and like comment on it But that's a weird thing for them to enjoy doing because throughout the entire book, they have done their level best to keep all the villagers away from their house and off the property. And they hate the villagers. Like, we have always hated the villagers. They have always hated us, right? And it's like, why would you gain any pleasure in watching them? Like, that is very strange, isn't it? it's it's very hard to believe that that existence would make either of them happy you're right that that definitely extends to mary catherine because she did everything in her power to keep them off the property that is yeah yeah it is very hard to believe that either of them are happy with this state of affairs but that's what they keep saying throughout the ending they keep repeating that they're happy and you're right that's not believable for either of them okay so Anything else you want to add for things we didn't understand? Why is, why does Constance act so oblivious about, like, Cousin Charles's motivations? (sighs) That's a good question. I kind of think that she doesn't want it to be true. No, 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 wait. No, I know what it is. So, Charles is very manipulative towards Constance, and he's basically, like, emotionally abusing her because Mary Catherine notes that during the time that Charles is staying with them, Constance develops this habit of saying, it's all my fault, it's all my fault, it's all my fault about literally everything. And that is emotional abuse right there. Like Charles is abusing Constance into thinking everything is her fault. And so Constance is like, don't blame Charles, it's my fault. And she sincerely believes that And I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I feel bad for her because their household is very messed up, but it's not entirely her fault. You know what I mean? That that's why, because she sincerely believes that Charles has done nothing wrong and it's all her. Okay, so I am very excited to wheel us in to our final segment, which is theories. Let us theorize. Okay, theory number one. Do you, do you want to go first? I know you've been excited about this. Okay, I'll go. Theory number one. Mary Catherine is dead. <laughs> okay, here's, here's why I believe this, okay? There's actually a lot of evidence for this, I would argue. Okay, first of all, Uncle Julian makes a weird statement during an argument that everyone is having. He's having an argument with Charles. And this is what he says. My niece, Mary Catherine, has been a long time dead young man. She did not survive the loss of her family. I supposed you knew that. My niece, Mary Catherine, died in an orphanage of neglect during her sister's trial for murder. Okay, 
first off, that is a weird thing for it to be coming out of nowhere. Why would Uncle Julian just make that up? As far as we know, he is a truthful person throughout the book. He never once makes things up for the heck of it. Like, that's just not him. He's obsessed with facts and understanding the truth. Throughout the book, he is working on a book about the murders. He is obsessed with finding out what actually happened that day down to the nitty-gritty details. The other argument you can make against Uncle Julian is that his memory is failing him, but I would argue his memory is not failing him in this case. Here's why. He recognizes Mary Catherine, who she is, and he recognizes her relationship to him. My niece, Mary Catherine. He repeats that deliberately both times. And I think that is to show that he understands. Like, he's lucid. He knows what he's saying. And he is saying that Mary Catherine is dead. And I think that that is believable. Like, the cause he states as well is believable. That she was put into an orphanage, which makes sense. She had no surviving family who could take care of her during the time Constance was on trial. And in those days, orphanages were terrible places. It's very believable that Mary Catherine was a child who did not survive the orphanage. Maybe not even neglect. It could have been severe abuse, right? Any Anything is possible, really. And I, I find this to be really believable. And it's weird for it to be coming out of absolutely nowhere. So this is the strongest piece of evidence. Uncle Julian is just straight up saying, Mary Catherine is dead. There are other pieces of evidence, however. For example, she will not eat in front of other people. She she just won't. She won't do it. And I think that this is often reflected in mythology. For example, like ghosts are often given offerings of food and it's not like they eat with other people. The offerings of food are just left out for them. And then after everyone else is done eating, the ghost will then eat their food offering. And then, of course, there is how weirdly childlike she remains, even though she is 18 years old. And that could be because she's not 18. She's 12, the age that she committed these murders. And she is just forever stuck at that age. So, put together, I think it is a very solid theory that Mary Catherine is dead. Also, oh, one more other thing I want to point to. Mary Catherine only, at the beginning of the book, when she goes to the village, she only ever goes on certain days. And that, to me, also feels very ghost-like, that it's like a ritual and she's only allowed to do it on certain days of the week. Like, that also feels very much bound to that kind of like mythology. So to me, this is very plausible. I do believe that Mary Catherine is dead. So, Mouse, do you wanna do you wanna bring up one of your theories now? Or maybe corroborate my brilliant theory? No, just kidding, it's our theory. We we came up with it together. But do you have a theory? Yeah, I just wanna add on to that. When you read that first paragraph, I thought Maybe Mary Catherine was really unhappy in the orphanage. She was really, like, abused or neglected or whatever. And she ate those mushrooms. Oh, that's really smart. Oh, my God. Why did I never pick up on that? Okay, that is... Okay, you know why that makes so much sense for people who haven't read the book? The death cat mushrooms are weird because they're mentioned that one time and they never come out again throughout the book. 
I thought at first the death cap mushrooms were the method of poisoning the family, but it's not. It was arsenic. So it's like, why the mushroom? That's so weird. But yeah, you're right. Maybe it was suicide by death cap mushroom, and that's why she likes them. Oh my god, why didn't I not think of that? You are so smart. Okay, yes, thank you. No, that's actually really brilliant. <laughs> okay, there we go, everyone. Um, irrefutable proof that Mary Catherine is dead. Well, I wouldn't call it proof. Also, I just wanted to say about your second point about her not eating in front of others. I think I think you're right, but that could just be her superstitious behavior. But the last part, I definitely agree. It's not just Constance that treats her as a child. Like, Cousin Charles comes and he's like, never mind, kids always take to me. So even Cousin Charles sees her as a kid, which is very strange. That is strange because she's supposed to be 18 by this point and most 18-year-olds can't really be taken for children. But if she's a ghost, then she's stuck looking 12 years old forever. And that really would explain why Cousin Charles treats her as a child because that's what she is. No, thank you. Thank you for bringing in further evidence. Okay, any other theories or should I move on to the next theory? Oh, go ahead. Okay. <sighs> okay, it's not enough for me that Mary Catherine is dead. Uncle Julian is dead too. And I also have proof for this. Okay, first off, everyone in the village freaks out when Mary Catherine mentions Uncle Julian. And it's not, okay, so if you just read this book on a surface level, then the reason that they freak out is because he survived the poisoning and they think it's weird for Mary Catherine to be mentioning him. But... That doesn't really work, does it? Because in that case, why would they not be even more freaked out by the sight of Mary Catherine herself? Like, if you can't even mention Uncle Julian's name, and yet you're saying, oh, hi, Mary Catherine, you know, putting up a polite front. That's weird, isn't it? And the other thing is that they especially freak out when you mention what he likes to eat. And that would be a weird thing to talk about for a ghost. Like, oh, yes, my ghost uncle, he really likes eggs. Like, that would be a weird thing to say, right? It would make sense for people to freak out. Like, oh, my God, she's crazy. He thinks that she thinks that he eats when he's dead. And then the other thing is at the very beginning, in the opening paragraph, my name is Mary Catherine Blackwood, okay? Mary Catherine Blackwood. Who else is mentioned? And I live with my sister, Constance. Everyone else in my family is dead. I read that as it being written, like, after the book is, like, over. Like, everything in, like, the book has already happened. You're right. It could be. Because, like, it jumps to the last time I blah, blah, blah. That's true. This book could be written in hindsight. Hmm. That's annoying. Yeah, I, I thought a lot about that in particular paragraph, too, but... Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's not a soundproof theory. Not like the Mary Catherine being dead theory, because, for example, he does technically die a natural death in the fire, right? Yeah, but if we believe Mary Catherine's version of, like, life and death in this book or this universe, ghosts can die. 
because she talks about cousin Charles and she says something like, oh, I wonder if he'll like show himself when he dies, even though she's saying like, oh, like he's a ghost, he's a demon, like, oh, will like Constance realize it when he dies? Yes, yes, that's true. Because if she herself is a ghost, then she's still alive technically in her own worldview. So even if Uncle Julian is a ghost, he can still die just as she can technically die as well. Yeah, you're right. And also like, you can also regard Uncle Julian, if even if Uncle Julian is a ghost, his death could be regarded as symbolic because he could not move on from the day that the murders happened. And with the Blackwoods home and their entire past being destroyed, he could not continue to live in that illusion. So maybe it was just time for him to move on, you know? Yeah, whether or not he was already dead or a ghost, I think that you're right. Yeah, so I think Mary Catherine is definitely dead, and I think it's likely that Uncle Julian is dead. To me, the most convincing piece of evidence remains how freaked out everyone is. (laughs) That is just weird. He, he, he. Yeah, no one will refer to him by name. And I think that if he were just like a survivor, people would be like a lot more sympathetic to him and not like freaked out. Because wouldn't you be more freaked out by a murderer than a survivor? I definitely agree. They seem to be much more freaked out about Uncle Julian than about Constance, even though they ascribe the murders to Constance. Yes. And also, it's just one of the first times that the tonal dissonance of the book becomes deafening. Mary Catherine is just narrating things pretty calmly, and then you have these unnatural reactions. And I think that is significant. The first time you feel the creepiness of the book is when Uncle Julian is mentioned. And I think that is very, very telling. So yeah, we think that both Mary Catherine and Uncle Julian are dead. And we feel it's a pretty, we feel it's pretty compelling. You know, I didn't really think about this, but it's possible that Constance is also dead. I had that same thought as well. Because you know how they have like all this like, you know, theoretical like evidence of her being the one who was murdered but like they just like drop the charges even though it's like oh because like not enough evidence blah 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 it's also possible that she just died what so she wait wait so when are you thinking she died during the trial so like suicide oh when mary catherine died oh so for example if mary catherine committed suicide then Constance might also have killed herself. Yeah, that makes sense because they they were so close and so dependent on each other. That's true. I can't imagine Constance just being okay with Mary Catherine dying. So maybe it's a house full of dead people. That would be another reason like why Charles would be disruptive because he's the only one who's like alive. It would also explain Mary Catherine and Constance's callousness towards like the idea of murder and death in general. Because if they're already dead, then they know it's nothing to be afraid of. And also, like, the implication that they both live forever in this house in this way would only make sense if they're both dead. You know, I had another kind of theory that I was working on, which is that the reason Constance acts so off at the end is because Mary Catherine kills her. (laughs) I couldn't find enough evidence for it, so I kind of dropped it. But I think it's possible right? Because the only way to truly keep things the same forever is if both of them are dead. While Constance is alive, there's always going to be a possibility of change. 
once she's dead, there can be none. <laughs> you know, I think also if oh yes, continue. No, no, you go. Oh, I was just gonna say maybe the reason Mary Catherine was able to be a ghost was because of her magic. Like maybe some of the magic was real, and the reason she died but didn't like really die is because of all the stuff she had and did in the spells and things. Something that also just occurred to me is maybe that's why they had the preserves discussion. Maybe Constance died via the preserves. Oh yeah. That could that could be an explanation. That would that would make sense. That's why Kath Constance is the one who knows about it. Right. That would make so much sense. But then why would Constance tell them not to eat it if they're already all dead? Because I don't think on on some level I don't think they know they're dead. Oh, and that's true. Maybe they don't know the other people are dead. Maybe they can vaguely recognize that they themselves died at some point, but they don't know that the other people are dead. Yes, yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because obviously Cousin Charles doesn't realize any of them are dead. So why would like they recognize each other as being dead? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, and Mary Catherine, if she is dead, she doesn't know it because she mentions uh, like, oh, my uncle Julian who thinks that I'm dead as if it's clearly not true. Yes. Yes. I think there are rules in this universe. If you recognize you're dead, then you do die for real, for example. Like, I think that's true. I think that maybe even what killed maybe Uncle Julian is the inability to keep living in the fantasy, right? Because once the house is gone, there's there's no way to keep believing he's alive. So he died for real, you know? So if you ascribe to our theories that all of them are dead, this is a haunted house story, as I, as I originally guessed it was. But, I mean, I think in a way it does tie back into the title as well. Like, we have always lived in the castle. Only really works if they're dead. (laughs) So, yes. There you go. We have turned a spooky story into a downright freaky story. You are welcome. Now, your Halloween assignment, even though I know Halloween is still a couple weeks away, your spooky season assignment, your spooky season assignment is to go back through and reread if you haven't read it already, reread We Have Always Lived in the Castle from the perspective that everyone is dead. <laughs> well, like Constance, Mary Catherine, and Uncle Julian. They are all dead. Reread it and see if you can read it at night. Because I guarantee you, once you start reading it from that perspective, you're going to be like, oh my God, this is the spookiest story ever. Well, maybe not the spookiest ever, but a lot spookier than it was in the first place. (laughs) Okay, so I think those are all of our theories and discussions and things we wanted to to talk about. So that was a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me, Mouse. Thank you for having me. So this was our first in-depth episode of the Spooky Book Support Club, and we will be back next week to talk about Night Film. So I hope you're excited for that. Okay, I'm going to wrap up this week's episode. This has been the 2AM Book Review Club. Thanks so much for joining us, and we will be back next week at 2AM. Until then, have a great week. Have a happy spooky season and happy book travels.